In Matthew chapter 14, in about the middle of the chapter, uh, we see Jesus jumping onto a boat and heading off to a solitary place after he heard the news that his, his cousin, John, um, had been beheaded by Herod. However, the people got wind of this, and so when Jesus landed his boat on the other side of the lake, uh, there was a multitude of people, 5,000 plus men, women, and children. But Jesus, he wasn't irritated by them. He wasn't annoyed by their interruption, but instead he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick among them, which had to be in the hundreds. And as evening approached, Jesus, he took five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied them, and he fed those 5,000 plus people. And everyone had their fill. Can you relate? <laughs> With leftovers, right? Where is the lid to that Tupperware? My goodness, right? Uh, we grabbed like 12 different Tupperwares trying to find a lid, right? Where is the lid? So we put these suckers away. And how can we fit in an engineering degree to put all that stuff back in your refrigerator? Well, they had, everybody had all they wanted. They all had, there was 12 basketful of leftovers. I think the 12 represented one for each of the disciples who did not think that Jesus was powerful enough to deal with the situation that was facing them. And then Matthew records these words, beginning in verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. Well, he sent the people home. After sending them home, he, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, so it's been, it's been a good chunk of time, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid. He said, take courage, I am here. Uh, literally, what he is saying, take courage, I am. You know, it's a term Yahweh in the Greek. It's always this strange term, ego a me. Ego means I, I, I am. And whenever you see that in the New Testament, it's Jesus declaring that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. So he says, hey, don't be afraid. I am Yahweh. And then Peter called him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why do you doubt me? And maybe he has the same question for some of us in this room. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. The wind they'd been fighting against for hours into the, into the darkness. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. You have no equal. You have no rival. Lord, you're the same today, yesterday, and forever. You calm the wind. You calm the waves. You are the great I am. We have no reason to fear. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that our focus is on you and you alone. Only you deserve our focus and attention. And God, I, I just pray that you enable me to speak your truth in a way that makes a difference not only in the lives that are listening, but in the one who is speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this message series called The Race. 
a, a series where we are unpacking just pretty much those three verses found in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, and we're kind of looking at them phrase by phrase. And if you would, would you please stand on your feet? Very good. That's usually where I stand, okay? And I'm going to say, after I say three, right, um, we'll read this together. One, two, three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You can be seated. Understand, when, when... When things in our life get hard, when they get difficult, sometimes what we want is comfort, but what we really need is is courage. Now, sometimes what we want is a little bit of sympathy, but what we need is strength. Sometimes we want people, if we're honest, we want people to to feel sorry for us. And believe me when I tell you, I get that. However, what we may actually need is for someone to come alongside of us, to challenge us, to, to push us, to pour some courage and strength into us. But again, I get it. You're tired. You're worn out. And and so there's part of you that that wants the coach to say, hey, you've been working hard and playing hard, and it's been a really tough game. And and a lot of plays, they've not gone your way. And when you glance at the scoreboard, yeah, I know the score is pretty discouraging. So why don't you come over here and have a seat on the bench and get something to drink? Yes, we may want that at the time, but... What we really need maybe is for a coach who says, hey, I know you're tired. I I know it hasn't been easy, but it's not time to quit. It's time to suck it up. The game's not over yet. There's still time left on the clock. So let's finish this thing. Now get back in there, do your job, and give it your best. Yeah, sometimes we, we want Mr. Rogers wearing a really awesome sweater to pat us on the back and tell us everything's gonna be okay. But what we need is William Wallace with a painted face wearing a kilt telling us, hey, it's not time to go home. It's not time to give up and surrender. It's time to fight. It's time to dig down deep and keep running the race. Get it? Good. And that's exactly what our God, our head coach, through the Hebrew writer is telling us and those first century Jesus followers in Hebrews chapter 12. And and listen, what he's told us so far in the series is that if you want to run well, if you want to run the race to win, if you want to one day hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant, if you want to receive the prize, the crown of life that will never fade away, then you must remember the great cloud of witnesses. And you must throw off every weight that hinders, especially the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles everything. And you must run with perseverance, the race that is clearly marked out for us in God's word. It's a race about loving God and loving others. It's a, it's a race about leaving the leaving the things of the world. It's a a race about being like Jesus, seeking the lost, making disciples, and 
and showing compassion. It's a race about living the life you were created to live. I can't say this enough to myself or to you. You were not created to live somebody else's life. Stop comparing your life to others and start tapping into God's power so that you can become more you. And this race is about, <clears throat> it's about running together. As I said last week, we are rebooting our life groups and beginning in January. Sign-ups begin this coming Sunday because no one should try to run this race alone. And I said, that's the race you must be running. And I think we all need to take seriously what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. He says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, giving them great outlines that fill out on Sunday mornings, I myself might <laughs> I myself might be disqualified. Exactly. Paul interpreted it for me. It would be more than tragic to leave this life and to find out that you were running the wrong race. And you don't know when this life's going to end. And I kind of just brought this up here. I can't remember how, many, how long it lasts. But like sand through the hourglass, so are the days of your life. So, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to leave it there. You look at it. Hey, you know what? All I'm saying is I don't know how much time you got, how much time I got. All I know is each second I got less time, right? And if I'm going to get serious about the race, it, it should be sooner rather than later. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not run the race I have clearly marked out for you? And if Paul was concerned about this, being disqualified, I, I know I should be concerned about it. Now this morning in the conversation called Fix Your Eyes, we're going to unpack Hebrews 12, verse 2. Now let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning a shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I am so stinking excited about this passage. I am. I learned stuff this week that I didn't know. It's amazing that we just keep learning. I learned some incredible stuff. And, 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 and what I want to do today is answer two really simple questions, right? Why should you fix your eyes on Jesus, right? And then how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? I'm very simple, right? My questions are usually easy because I, I, I'm simple, right, uh, that way. Okay, why should you fix your eyes on Jesus? I see four reasons, at least four in our text. Number one, it's going to blow your mind. You should fix your eyes on Jesus because he's Jesus. Because he's the one that can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 plus people. Because he's the one who can, who can walk on water, and if you get out of the boat, he can help you walk on water too. Because he's the one that can calm every wind and every wave. Because he's the one that reaches his powerful hand and pulls you and I up out of the stormy waters of this life. You should fix your eyes on Jesus because he's Jesus. And check out the, these two passages about Jesus. The first is from Colossians chapter 1. I mean, if this stuff is true, like Jesus is like a really big deal, right? Like the biggest deal. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and 
for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, the next picture of, of Jesus is from Revelation chapter 1. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death. In Hades. I understand when you're tired, when you feel like giving up, turn your focus to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Look full in his wonderful face because, and listen, this is the argument the Hebrew writer makes throughout all 13 chapters of his book. That Jesus is preeminent. That Jesus is better than all things. Uh, understand, that, that's the theme of Hebrews. The superiority or the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is superior, that, that he's supreme to your challenges, that he's supreme to your circumstances that you're facing, to the situations that you're dealing with. One way we could say that is that Jesus is, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Would you look a couple of people in the eyes and just tell them that Jesus is better. It's Jesus, he's better than anything you're dealing with in any situation you're facing. Jesus is better. And now that word better or, or, or superior is used about 15 times in the book of Hebrews. And I mean, the author keeps hammering that point home because, because Maple Grove, a, a confidence in the superiority of Christ is what gives us courage and strength as we run this race. And that was true for the first century Christians who were reading this letter for the first time. Most of them had been Jewish Christians and they started off the race, they started off the Christian life with excitement and determination. And then they found out that the, the race of life is full of, full of challenges. They soon started dealing with persecution and opposition and cultural ridicule because of their faith in Jesus. And they grew tired. 
And many of them had walked off the track altogether. And so the Hebrew writer wants to fill them with courage by telling them, Jesus is worth it because Jesus is better. In fact, if you, if you just make a list when you go through the book of Hebrews, you'll see all the things that Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than your traditions. Jesus is better than the prophets. I mean, that's how the entire book of Hebrews begins. In the past, in the days of old, God spoke to us through his prophets, and, and that was good. That was nice. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, and Jesus is better. In chapter 3, the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is better than Moses. And we hear that, and we're like, yeah, makes sense to me. I never, <clears throat> I never even saw it. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to clear my throat. It's going to be really loud. <laughs> <laughs> I warned you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes you just got to do it, right? You got to own it and clear it and move on. All right. <laughs> Jesus is better. You go through the book, he, he's better than the angels. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the Levitical system. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than the suffering you're dealing with. He's better than the temptations that you struggle with. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is better. So fix your eyes on him when you run the race. Fix your eyes on Jesus and, and don't give up. Don't quit. A second reason why you should fix your eyes on Jesus is because Jesus, he's out in front leading the way. Now let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He writer says that Jesus is the author of our faith. It's a cool word. Arhegas. I'm probably saying it wrong. Arhegas. 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 Right? It means author, founder, chief leader, beginner. One who takes the lead and thus forms an example. Uh, this word, Arhegas, is only used four times in the entire New Testament, and it's used to, to describe Jesus. And, and I really like the picture that uh, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, gives of this word, Arhegas. It's this. Imagine an explorer cutting his way deep into the jungle. Nobody has been this way before. There are no paths, no trails, no signs that it's possible to go this way. Yet on he goes, forging his way through impossible terrain until he reaches the goal. Once he's done that, others can follow. You see, when it, when it comes to running the race, Jesus is our, our Hagos. He's out in front leading the way. Understand, Jesus, he's, you know, he's made a way when, where there was a way. He, he's forged in a trail through terrain that was dangerous and we thought was impossible. Jesus has reached his goal and now he's motioning to us, right? Come on, this is the way. Follow me. You can do this. Bottom line, Jesus is the way. He paves the way. And Jesus shows us the way. He is our, our Higas. And that is why you should fix your eyes on him. Because Jesus has already gone where you want to go. Jesus has already gone where you want to go. Get it? Good. Yes, Jesus is our, our Higas. And the Hebrew writer says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so what was the joy set before Jesus that enabled him 
to make a way where there was no way and to reach his goal. I, I like to read a quote from a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on January the 30th, 1859. I was there. It was a great sermon. I think I saw some of you in the audience with me that day. All right. Here's what he said about the joy set before Jesus. The joy of fulfilling the Father's will, of sitting down on the Father's throne, of being made perfect through suffering. But still I know that this is the grand, great motive of the Savior's suffering, the joy of saving us, the joy of feeding us with bread of heaven, the joy of clothing naked sinners in his own righteousness, the joy of finding mansions in heaven for homeless souls, of delivering us from the prison of hell and giving us the internal enjoyments of heaven. Wow. And listen, because of that joy, the joy of seeing death, sin, and the grave defeated, and you and I being made right with God, and being with God forever, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And that word endured is the same word we met a few weeks ago when we looked at the phrase, run with perseverance, right? It's that Greek word, hupomeno, which means remaining under, to remain under, all that's pressing down on you. Now understand, Jesus endured, he remained under, despite the tremendous weight of the cross pressing down on him. Listen, from his arrest Thursday night in the garden to his final words at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. on Friday, unimaginable weight was pressing down on Jesus. Betrayals, trials, beatings, crown of thorns, scourging, mocking, stripped naked, six-inch spikes driven into his hands and his feet. Yet despite all that pressing down on him, Jesus, Hupomeno, Jesus remained under, he endured the cross, and not only that, Jesus scorned its shame. This is another cool word. Cataphernao. Compound word. Cata meaning down, phernao meaning mind. It means to think down upon, to think against, to think little or nothing of, to despise. I love that picture. I love the picture that Cataphernao paints of Jesus looking down at the cross and despising and thinking nothing of the shame of the cross. And understand that though you and I put them in our churches and on our churches and we tattoo them to our bodies and we wear them around our necks, there was tremendous shame associated with the cross in the first century. I mean, it was the most shameful way for somebody to die. That's why a Roman citizen could not even be crucified. Only the lowest of lows could be executed by the cross. And to the Jews, anyone hanging on a cross was considered cursed of God. So there's no doubt that Jesus' crucifixion was one of the most humiliating and painful deaths anyone could ever suffer. Uh, let me quote from that sermon you, me and some others heard that day in 1859 from Charles Spurgeon. The person of Christ was stripped. And although our painters, for obvious reasons, covered Christ upon the cross, there he hung, the naked Savior of a naked race. He who clothed the lilies had not wherewith to clothe himself. 
He who had clothed the earth with jewels and made for it robes of emeralds had not so much as a rag to conceal his nakedness from a staring, gazing, mocking, hard-hearted crowd who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The shame of the cross was pressing down upon Jesus on that Good Friday. It was real. It was powerful. Yet the Hebrew writer said that Jesus scorned it. Again, what an awesome and amazing word to use. Jesus hanging from the cross. He's naked. He's bleeding. He's bruised. They're mocking him. And Jesus thinks down upon that shame. He thinks against that shame. He thinks little or nothing of the shame. And he despises the shame of the cross. Understand, even as the shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had, his friends giving way in shaming abandonment, his reputation giving way in shaming mockery, his decency giving way in shaming nakedness, his comfort giving way in shaming torture, his glorious dignity giving way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching and moaning and pain just trying to breathe. But the Hebrew writer said that Jesus scorned the shame, thinking down upon, thinking against, thinking little or nothing of it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's as if Jesus is speaking to shame. Shame, I see you, I hear you. <laughs> but listen, you're not so tough. You're not so bad. Hey, Shane, do you see the joy in front of me? I mean, do you really think you have any power over me compared to the joy before me? Joy, joy, joy. That's my power, not you, Shane. Shane, you think you can distract me? But listen, I'm not even going to look at you. I mean, why should I look at you when I have such joy set before me? Shane, you're almost finished. Listen, before you can say, ha, I got you, Jesus, I will throw you off like a filthy rag and clothe myself with royal robes. Shame, you think you're so great because even last night you made my disciples run away? But understand, that abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering. And they, in fact, will not destroy my disciples. They will save them. Shame, you don't realize, but you're fulfilling prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. And you are finished. Why should you fix your eyes on Jesus? Because he's Jesus. Because he's, he's the Arhegas. He's the one out in front leading the way and showing the way. And next, because he completes you. It says he's the perfecter of your faith. That word means to make perfect, to fulfill, to finish, to complete, to accomplish his purpose. And, 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 I, and, I, and I hope you're listening because it's not your job. It's not another person despite what Jerry Maguire might say. It's not some worldly, earthly possession, pleasure, success, or accomplishment that will complete you, that will make you truly who you were meant to be. Remember, everything was created through him and for him. Message Bible words is this way. Everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Question, do you want to live a full and complete, meaningful, satisfying life? Do you want to find your God-given purpose, a reason why you exist? Do you want to become all that you were meant to be? 
then fix your eyes on Jesus because he is the perfecter. He is the completer of both your life and your faith. Get it? Good. And Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The final reason you should fix your eyes on Jesus is because he reigns and rules over all. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, right now Jesus is sitting down at the throne. I can tell you, I've been reading Revelation, some crazy stuff. I don't understand a whole lot, but that is some serious throne, all right? That's all I'm saying. There's some serious stuff happening around that throne, and that's some serious power coming from that throne. And Jesus is just sitting there right now. Hundreds of millions of angels around him. People bowing down before him. That's where he is. Listen, Jesus reigns and rules over all. He's Lord of all. He is sovereign and in control of all. And of everything, past, present, future, heaven, earth, visible and invisible. I, I, I like what Jesus said to John in Revelation 1. That, 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 see, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we realize how big he is and that he's in control. And that comforts us and it eases our fear, right? Like John's like freaking out a little bit. And Jesus says, Don't, do not be afraid. Why? Because I'm the first and last, right? I'm, I'm like all there is. I'm the living one. I was dead and now, look, I'm alive. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. See, in Christ, death and the grave have, Jesus said basically to John, don't be afraid because death and the grave have no hold on you because I am holding you, right? You should fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he's Jesus. And because he's out in front leading the way. Because he'll complete you. You're looking for other stuff to complete you. That's why you're incomplete. And he reigns and rules over all. And how do you do it? How do we do it? First, by looking away from all else. Let us fix our eyes. And that phrase, fix your eyes, is just one word in original language. And it's such an awesome word. Seriously, like, like when I found out what that word meant this week, I had to leave my office and walk around the building to find somebody I could share it with. And I told Karen, no one else was here, so here I am talking to you. I was teaser. I couldn't find anybody else, so I'm going to share it with you about this word. And it's a compound word. Apareo, made up of two words that mean away from, apo, away from, separation, on to see, to consecrate, or gaze upon. Now, there are 20 different words that the Hebrew writer could have chose to describe, to look at, or to see, but God had him use this word, right? Because in order to fix your eyes on Jesus, right, you have to turn your eyes away from all else. Have you done that? It's not going to work any other way. In fact, if you don't turn your eyes away from all else, I mean, God chose this word for a reason. Away from, now I can look at Jesus. I mean, just ask Peter, right? When Peter decided not to turn his eyes away from the winds and the waves, what happened to him, right? It did not work out so good. And you know, I think this word, and the truth within it, 
may be the answer as to why some of us have found it kind of hard to see Jesus. And he's kind of not always that clear. And we only seem to get glimpses of him because we do not turn our eyes away from all else, right? So you see, God is like an all or nothing thing. And Jeremiah chapter 29 kind of talks about this, right? We, we, all, we all know the Jeremiah 29 11 and, and celebrate that, right? You know, I know the plans I have for you, the Lord. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans now, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you hope in the future, right? But he goes on to say this, right? You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I'll be found by you, right? See, you don't find God until you want God more than you want anything else. And you don't see God until you, Afafereo, turn your eyes away from all else. Question, what do you need to turn your eyes away from? I mean, what is worth it, right? I mean, you got your answer, maybe I have mine, but what is worth not seeing Jesus? Lord, help us to see, God, what it is we need to turn our eyes away from. Holy Spirit, help each of us not to miss this moment, including me. What do I think I need to gaze upon that is keeping me from seeing you? Help me to turn my eyes away from it. Help us to listen to you. Holy Spirit, reveal to each of us what it is in Jesus' name. Amen. Next, by gazing intensely at him. That's how you fix your eyes on him. How do you do that, right? Like, uh, how do you gaze intently at someone you can't see? And there's really only one way. It's a good way. It's a powerful way. It's a sure and certain way. All right? All right? And that's this. This is the only way. To read and study the Bible. That's it. That's how you see him. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God, right? If you don't know this Word, you do not know Jesus, therefore you cannot see Jesus, right? It's as simple as that, right? Jesus reveals himself in his Word. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation is the revealing of Christ and all his power and glory, right? And so that's how you get, you want to gaze upon Jesus? And I got to tell you, I mean, this week, reading Revelation, a lot I don't understand. One thing again, like, hey, great throne, powerful stuff. Jesus is like amazing, right? Like he is crazy big. He's this, he's this lamb that is powerful, right? He's this one that everybody bows down to and listens to. He's the one that's in control of everything. I can get that out of it, right? What a powerful Jesus, right? He's not just some baby lying in a manger. He's not somebody that people beat and hung on a cross, right? He's a savior king. He's the great I am, right? And so if you want to gaze, you read this book, he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. And he wants you to sit at his feet. Some of you, you know what? You're like Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, right? Sit at my feet, come in my presence, see me for who I am, right? How do you fix your eyes on turn away from, gaze intently at him, and, and, and if you want to endure and remain under, if you want to think, upon, think down upon any difficulty or hardship that comes your way, you need to set your joy before you. And if you are a Jesus follower, oh my goodness, do we have some serious joy before us? I'm going to read a few passages but this is true, like this is like the mega millions times a mega million, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Is it troubled right now? 
Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If there were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's what he's saying, right? He says, I'm going back to my father's house. I'm preparing a place for you. And one day, I'm coming back to get you. And you're going to be with me. And I got a place for you. And you'll be with me there forever. Paul, who went through a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulties as he ran this race, said this in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that one day will be revealed in us, revealed to us. Now here's truth. So you see, here's how our story, well, both ends here and begins there. Like again, if this is true, then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling now is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and he himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or divorce, or disease, or hate, or anger, or racism, or hatred, for the older things have passed away. He was sitting on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. It may not happen yet, but it's done. Why? Because I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I'll be their God. And they will be my children. You need to set your door before you. It changes everything. Right? Knowing how it ends changes everything. Just an illustration. Forgive me for it. Super Bowl 51. Midway through the third quarter, my team was down 28 to 3. And people in my house were really having fun. <laughs> Parents were texting kids, hey, is Steve enjoying the game? No, Steve wasn't. At that point, Lady Gaga was my highlight of the whole day, right? I had squoze my legs so hard to act like a pastor during this was going on that I think I had bruised myself. But as we know, it, it turned out differently. Since that time, I've watched that game several times. And even when we're down, guess what? I, I, I don't get upset. When I look at the scoreboard, it looks like we got no chance. I don't get worried. I don't get freaked out. I don't get bothered by it. Why? Because, hey, I know the ending. I had to watch it again so I could actually enjoy it. I enjoyed every bit of it. I enjoy watching them taunting us on the sidelines. Oh, they see nobody like us. I enjoyed every minute of it. Because I knew how it ends. In Christ, we know how it ends. We know how it ends. And, and so and sometimes it's going to be hard and sometimes you're going to get hit. Sometimes you're going to get knocked down. Sometimes it's not going to go well. But just remember, in the end, you win. Set your joy before you. And you tell those situations, do you really think you're going to totally beat me up and depress me forever? Not when I got this joy. You think this traffic jam, you think this, this mean boss, you think this disease, you think this is going to get me down when I know my forever? I've set my joy before me, and I, I look down upon you. I scorn you. I despise you. I got to nail you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. 
Help us, help me to fix my eyes on you. Forgive me for fixing my eyes other places and then somehow having it mess up. And then me thinking it's you, not me. And God, I pray for everybody in this room, Lord, Lord, if, that, that if they're going through a hard time right now, help them to, to set their joy before them. Help them to see what you did. Help them to know that you already blazed the trail, that you're already there where, where they need to be. Help them to know that you are their completer, that you will complete them. You will complete their life. You will satisfy their life. You will give them purpose. And they won't find it anywhere else, Jesus. No place else. And hope all of us know that, God, despite sometimes this world seems chaotic, you sit enthroned above the circle of the earth and everybody on the earth are like grasshoppers, God, that you reign and rule over all. And thank you, Jesus, that when we finish this race, when we get to the end of our race, that you are there waiting for us to hand us the crown of life. So Lord, I pray that we don't quit, we don't give up, and that we set our joy before us and run the win. In Jesus' name, amen.